Welcome to the Comfortably Profitable Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Bowen, and please join me each week when we continue to discover the pitfalls of being comfortably profitable. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, with me today, I am super happy to introduce Rob Howard, who is uh, not only a friend, but a local entrepreneur. Um, he would call himself a brand engagement expert. He's also the author of an amazing book called Fix Break, The Addiction That's Killing Brands. So please uh, welcome Rob Howard to the show. Thank you very much. How are you doing today, Rob? Pretty good. Thanks. Pretty good. Thanks for coming all the way down to our office. <laughs> well, this is a great place and in a, a great location, a great building, and a great city. Yeah, and unfortunately, we did not have the beer that I promised, but uh, coffee seems to be working today. It's coffee time of day, anyway. So yeah, as I grab my water <laughs> and my coffee, I'm double fisting today. Anyways, thanks for coming in. So I gave the audience a really brief introduction of you being a brand engagement expert and an author. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit more because I know what you do is a lot more complex than working on brands. Yeah, these days I, I kind of, you know, the kitschy spin I put on that these days is, is that I call myself a, a brand rehabilitation therapist and, and, a, and a consumer engagement engineer. And so, I mean, that's just a, a, maybe a bit more of a fancier creative label than... Um, than how you explained it. But I, 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 t I work with organizations to help in the prevention, the treatment, or, or the recovery of, um, uh, from unsustainable marketing practices. So I like to think that I help healthy brands thrive and help you know, Sherpa or lead sick brands up the mountain path to the peak of wellness. Okay, all right. So recovery with brands. I had some notes here and one of them was uh, renovating brands, but we'll use recovery. So on this podcast, we talk as much as we can about um, the phenomena around my cautionary tale, which is um, being comfortably profitable. And, you know, I don't need to educate the audience on what that means. You understand as well. Uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse. But when thinking about being comfortably profitable and getting out of that and getting back to feeding ambition, there's a lot of things that come into play to actually execute um, that effectively and, and get back to growing your business the way you did when you started. Um, I like to think of it as like a key. There's all sorts of little you know, peaks and valleys and nubs and wedges on a key. And every single one of those is ultimately important to be able to open that door. So when people talk about like the key to success, don't forget that there's a lot of intricacy to that key. Um, so one of the things that I've been really wanting to talk to you about is a scenario that I see play out often where that entrepreneur they finally find that spark again. Maybe they watch the right show, talk to a friend, listen to a podcast like, like this one, hopefully, um, or read the right book, and they get that spark of motivation and they're ready to get back on it. And then they jump right back into their business. And one of the things they realize is their brand is not set up for where their ambition is now ready to take it. And because their brand's not ready, meaning their web presence, their messaging, their target audience has changed, their products maybe aren't uh, aligned as well as they used to be to their current market, they instantly see a mountain of work product that they have to go, like that they have to start working on in order to execute on this new motivation. And motivation, you know, it lasts not very long. And it's usually, that's one of the reasons, the, the basically the state of their brand, why they decide that that motivation is not going to get them through. They fall back into being comfortably profitable until maybe they get a big enough spark again and hopefully get through this branding issue. So, 
you said you work with brands when they're when they're doing well and when they need some recovery. Can you talk to us a little bit about what? It, how do you identify that your brand needs recovery, and how do you put together some sort of a plan quickly? So that way it doesn't kind of take away that motivation and you can actually recover it quickly and, 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 and keep that motivation and momentum going. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, often what I'm, I'm doing is what I call brand rehab, <laughs> you know. And, um, you, know, th- you know, there's sort of two magical questions that I would use early in conversation with the potential client or, or a client that will allow me to determine pretty quickly what their state of, of health or wellness is. And the first one goes something like, you know, if you stopped advertising tomorrow, or if you stopped promoting, or if you stopped um, marking down or discounting, you know, those kinds of things. If you stopped doing those things tomorrow, what would happen? And just let that question sit for a minute. And, um, you know, the, the answer, depending on how they answer, will determine whether or not they've fallen into that that death spiral, that trap of constantly buying customers. I've found that over time, as you know, as, uh, you, you move from startup, um, you go from just simply, um, you know, starting um, to existing and then thriving, as as Blair Enns and David Baker like to put it. Um, but the, as a as a brand matures, you often end up making these trade offs or making these unhealthy choices where you know, a brand or a marketing department or the brand leadership will, instead of thinking long-term like they were in the, in the beginning, in order to get revenue going and customers, you know, uh, coming in the door, they'll make decisions that are very short-term in, in their thinking. So things that generate immediate, immediate results instead of um, making longer-term uh, investments that will pay off down the road, much like they were doing back in the beginning. And so you end up falling into this the death spiral of, you know, constantly um, doing these things that generate immediate returns or immediate results and trading off the long term. Um, and that can be really difficult to break out of um, for a lot of organizations. The second question I ask um, to determine their state of health is something like, you know, if your company or if your product or if your brand disappeared tomorrow, would anyone, would anyone miss it? You know, that's a um, heavy question. It's a heavy question, right? And then uh, the, the, that, that is meant to answer whether or not they're a brand or an organization or a product that is, that is easily replaceable. Do they matter? Do they matter to the lives of the consumers they serve, or even the people that work there? You know, beyond um, you know the loss of pay or employment that um, you know that their current employees would would have or, or face if they were to go out of business or disappear tomorrow, um, you know, would 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 it matter? Right? It's would it really matter to them or or to those that that buy the products or, or buy the brand? So I think those are two really big questions. I found that um, when it comes back to um, to getting things going again, to really, you know, once they've found their spark or they've mustered the courage um, and they've decided that it's time for change, right? Um, they're not just contemplating change anymore, but they're actually taking action or steps towards changing. 
I found more often than not that the organization and those that lead the organization haven't so much as lost their way as they've lost their why. And restoring that why to the heart of the company, that driving ethos behind it, is really key. And a lot of times I'm working with organizations not to address branding or marketing issues um, as people would kind of perceive branding, marketing, branding or marketing issues to be on the outside. Um, it's less about what the brand says um, or looks like in its communications and stuff like that, but really I'm often working with them through periods of cultural transformation as they reorient the organization and all that, that it produces and how it behaves as a brand and as an organization around this core DNA, this core purpose or reason for being. And that really kind of ends up being the area of focus for a lot of brands that are in the position that you described. Interesting. Yeah. Do you see any correlation? Um, I'm just trying to give the audience maybe some checkpoints for themselves and their business. So do you see any correlations with the brands that are really in that recovery mode? Um, whether it be, you know, size of business, how long they've been in business, industries, type of people. Is there anything that's similar or, or is it really randomized? I'm not sure I understand your question exactly, but... So... So would you say that there's that the companies that you've worked with that are in this in this brand rehab, you know, they've they've certainly taken their eye off of it. Are there similarities between the, the, the leadership group in diff, in these different companies or is it kind of like a decade in to companies start to face these issues or is it revenue uh, numbers that they hit that they start to see these issues like is there any is there any similarities where you could say you know companies usually once they're past a decade they start to you know they start to change or not change or I think the similarities are really around where they want to go right it's less about how old they are or what phase of maturity they are in um, and more about whether or not they've decided that um, maintaining status quo is going to get them where they want to go or not. Okay. Right. And so they're usually at a stage of either they're trying to figure out if change is needed or they've already decided that change is needed and they're contemplating how to make those changes and when to make those changes. Or they may have already started actively making those changes and need some other things to align um, either within their organization or within their marketing departments or things like that to, to, to fully realize um, you know, the outcomes of, of those changes and achieve the things that they want to. Okay, so do you spend a lot of time with the marketing groups then? Yeah, sometimes, but not exclusively. You know, if, um, you know, if the problems are you know, within the confines of the marketing department, we'll certainly focus on that. But uh, more often than not, we're working with, um, you know, or I'm, I end up working with, you know, uh, the leadership teams sort of at an executive level. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, I think it's, it, I think it's because sometimes the change requires, and often it requires a level of cultural transformation. Um, and that... And that means that you need to build the confidence um, and the courage among leadership at that level to abandon some of the, the, the things like the short-term thinking that may be plaguing the organization and commit to more longer-term investments, right? I, I think that there are big decisions that are facing them and um, 
if you're not working within the leadership circle to instill that kind of confidence and that courage in them to make those big decisions. As you know, some organizations are large, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and when big decisions uh, need to be made, if the organization um, you know, can't follow, um, then nothing really ends up happening. And so it's really key that you know, whoever's steering the ship are the ones that are instigating change from within. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So if our listeners are, are facing brand recovery in their mind, and that's one of the maybe multiple things, or let's say for this purpose, it's the only thing that seems to be, you know, the thing they're hitting their, their head on and on a low ceiling to try to, you know, get back to building their business. And as we all know, you can build a business with a brand that starts off in recovery mode. Right? You, can, you can get to a certain critical mass, but that only lasts so long before you either start losing customers, start facing more challenges with getting customers or certainly cultural issues internally. You know, what are some of the things that that entrepreneur, maybe of that like small to mid-sized company should be, should be focusing on? Like what's the short list of things that they should be focusing on in order to kind of make that next jump forward? I think one of the biggest areas that are overlooked are, are the people within the organization themselves. Um, is your culture aligned with where you want you know, your ship, your organization to go? Um, and I found often that it's not. Um, in, in a lot of the organizations that I've worked with, you know, um, they have this dream or this vision or this ideal future state that they want to get to. Um, but employees were brought in to do to fill certain roles or certain functions within the organization, and often organizations um, of a certain scale or size don't like change, right? Um, and that can be very hard to break out of. To have an organization adopt a new mindset um, is can be incredibly difficult. Um, it certainly can't feel like change is happening to them. It should feel like change is happening with them. And so I feel like, you know, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of thinking and decisions that can be made at a higher level in an organization about what our brand should be or how things could change. But the reality is that change has to happen from within. And some of the the greatest brands in the world are, are great examples of 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 that um, that principle in play. Okay. Okay. So when we talk about brand, just so we're really clear, this is a leading question. What do you mean by brand specifically? Because some people listening might be think, oh, like my Facebook account or just my website is my brand or just my logo is my brand. How do you define a brand for, let's say, a small company? Yeah, I mean, a brand could be could be anything. Most importantly, is is a brand is you know is a set of feelings or emotions that people attach to something, either a product uh, or a service or an organization or a story you might go into, um, that kind of thing, right? So I use it as sort of a big of a catch-all, right? It could be you know a sports team can be a brand just as much as it is a sports team. Absolutely, yeah. You say emotion for sure. <laughs> What's your favorite hockey team? Well, we got you here. Oh, come on. Yeah, I'm from Toronto. You're <laughs> safe here. Blue-blooded. You're safe. We're in a blue room. Blue and white room. Okay. Okay, you're safe. Do I, should, do I need to show you my tattoo? No. <laughs> I'll show you mine. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, okay, so let's, let's help the entrepreneur that's just starting out. And 
they've got this idea, this business, this product or service, and generally what happens is they'll slap together a logo as fast as they can using some sort of inexpensive or free logo maker. They'll slap together a website with minimum minimum time and money put towards it, and they'll go out and try to make their their brand a reality. They'll get an email address from Google. Um, they might shortcut it as much as to still have the name of the company at gmail.com. So let's talk to those entrepreneurs and say, if you could slow down one more week or one more month before you race to market from your current from the, your current plan, which is just race to market, what should they focus on? What should they shore up before they start moving forward? Yeah, I think the, one of the most important things to focus on is really understanding who your customer is. And I find so often that great ideas translate themselves into products or services um, that end up in the market um, in ways that, yeah, and the promotions or the communications around them that are meant to, you know, drive awareness and demand um, are focused way more on interrupting customers than they are in intercepting them with relevant, meaningful communications. Um, and so understanding your customer and how they, what their expectations are of you and of your brand and of your offering will lead you to insights to, that will help you engage them. And I think what the biggest overlooked aspect of many startups is going to market without some semblance of, um, of a customer journey. It starts with a, with a process called decision mapping, right? So if you look at how, um, and I see especially in the B2B play, um, space that this is um, tremendously overlooked, um, even though there's lots of talk and buzz about things like decision mapping and customer journey mapping, they often really don't have a good understanding of what the consumer or their customer is thinking, feeling, or doing in any one particular phase of the customer journey. And especially in the B2B space, there's um, there's still this outdated um, concept of you know the purchase funnel, yeah. Uh, and that mentality is just um, old and should be should be put to bed for good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you really look and understand how consumers and customers, whether it's you know, business to consumer or business to business these days, really go about um, engaging with brands or organizations um, and understanding what that path looks like, uh, what that journey looks like, and what those points along that, that journey are like, then you can really start to think about, well, what are the most, what are the most effective ways that we can engage them at any one of those particular points along that path that's going to motivate them based on what we've learned about them in the direction along that path that we want them to go. And I find that that's an area that gets far too often overlooked. Um, and so you end up in the market pushing products um, or services uh, into consumers' lives in very disruptive or interruptive ways rather than engaging them. Um, which will has been proven to forge a deeper bond and attachment with consumers that's going to drive higher customer lifetime value and loyalty over time. So. Yeah, totally. It's interesting. You bring up the uh, that sales, what did you call it? The, the purchase funnel. The purchase funnel. So a funnel is vertical, right? And the customer journey is often illustrated horizontal. And I and I went through an exercise recently with, with a company and we 
we took their their uh, their sales funnel and we just turned the piece of paper on the easel sideways and put it beside the customer journey that we were we were um, we were showing them that they had to think about and it was amazing they right away they realized that they're the same thing one's just vertical and one's horizontal but it's actually a customer journey and when you seem to put it into a traditional sales funnel you just start thinking tactics like sales tactics how can you know when do i call them when they don't know i'm going to call them how do i email them or show up at their office in the this is more in the b2b space right how do i show up at their office unannounced how do i jam a a pamphlet down their throat and you have all these intrusive steps in the sales funnel but when you flip it on its side and turn it into a customer journey, it's amazing. You start thinking about how you can humanize and attract the whole process that was once your sales process. So the interesting thing is in this scenario, um, the customer totally got it. And then at some, at near the end of the meeting, they said, great, so we'll do the customer journey. And as soon as they get to the end of that, then we'll start working on our sales pipeline. And we'll really close them yeah. in that last step. And so we showed them that the customer journey was all of it. Right. And it's just thinking about like attracting people and talking to people the way they want to be spoken to and, and, and in the places that they want to have these conversations. And the whole B2B market is like it's it's like spoon. It's like force feeding a baby. Right. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Not, not in B2B anymore. And it used to. That's that's a crazy thing. A lot of these organizations are run by people that had massive success, hit massive bonuses, won the trips the accolades, the plaques all over their wall, you know, you know, pre-2008 doing it that way. And it's amazing how fast things have changed. We don't have to agree with it, but we have to respect it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's true. It's, you know, brands that emphasize engagement over advertising, you know, have long been proven to be, you know, more profitable. Um, you know, they can weather, you know, economic turbulence better than they have, they have a much higher uh, loyalty and customer lifetime value. The, the benefits, you know, to, to focusing on engagement across the, the customer journey uh, are numerous. And you think of all the world's best, you know, likely your favorite brands, <laughs> you know, or all the brands that people would kind of consider as, you know, the top, you know, most profitable, most recognized and most uh, adored brands in the world all focus on on engagement. That's where they really shift their emphasis to and their understanding of their customers' worldview and their understanding of their, of their customers' lives and, and they purposely and uh, intentionally architect a customer journey that will engage them at every step of the way. Totally. And in my in my book, actually, I've got a whole chapter based on the, the customer journey. You described it as as linear, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you were to go out there and, and search on Google, you'd see lots of linear customer in, journey. Methods. In a whiteboard session, that's what it would look like traditionally. It's an easy way to diagram them. The, the, the journey is actually quite you know cyclical, and so when you really, when, if you were to draw it out, it would look more like a you know, like a, like a circle or, you know, or almost like a vortex kind of thing. But, um, yeah, there's a whole chapter in my book, Break the, uh, Fix, Break the Addictions that, killing, that Are Killing Brands. And, um, and that's, uh, that's worth a read. So if you're listening to this podcast and confused by all this customer journey talk, um, you know, pick that up. Amazon, right? Still on Amazon? That's right, yeah. Okay, awesome. Um, you donated a book for us a while ago. And I must say that uh, before we gave it to the winner, I read it. Oh good. Yeah, yeah. A couple of us in the office actually read it before it got donated. So you highlighted all the parts, and you just really. I just ripped out the best pages and then handed it. Oh no, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so 
So it's funny, the stuff that you talk about are real big picture for sure. And, and that's why you get back to the why. Like, why, why did you start the business? Why did you start working at the company? You know, what, what motivated you to that success early? Obviously, there's some inspiration there, some aspiration as well. And do you find that, that some of these entrepreneurs, when you're dealing maybe at small and mid-sized companies, they just get kind of, they start drifting away from that original why, which is why they're actually um, needing some help and some rehab? Or is it that they're just focusing on other parts of the business? Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when you when your organization grows beneath you, you know, and, and you know, often you can find yourself, you know, playing a role that was very different than what you'd envisioned, right? You know, you were the chief visionary officer at one point, and you know, now as uh, as you're leading, you know, um, you know, hopefully a thriving organization at that point. Um, you know, you might be doing something very different, right? But someone's got to be the gatekeeper of all of that, right? That um, that that ethos behind everything needs to be really apparent to everyone. I look at brands like Airbnb, um, having spent some time with them at um, at the gathering summit a few years ago, listening to their leadership and all that they've done to take what was really important to you know the founders. And put that at the core of all the decision making that goes on. Everything that they do is driven, you know, by this set of um, this set of values and this this um, this DNA that comes from the very beginning, right? And so that helps ensure that no matter what role <laughs> the founders end up playing in the end, you know, that that brand, that organization is going to stay on the path that they'd originally envisioned for it. And it comes it comes to life in all sorts of ways through. You know, um, and they're a brand that does do some advertising, some advertising. Um, and but when you see it, you really get it's. You know, are they advertising? You know, the website and the app, or are they are they really advertising something bigger? You know, and that's a real difference. Yeah, they're they're using you know paid media to expose what lies at the core of their brand and making it mean something to people, you know, and that's really key, you know, I'm not anti-advertising, some people have called me that in the past, and I'm not at all, uh, but when you use it effectively uh, to do things like that, advertising can be very engaging. Yeah, I just experienced something with Airbnb for the first time uh, in the last 48 hours, so I'm looking for a place for a trip with some friends, and I typically would go on VRBO. I decided to check out Airbnb for other options. Uh, this group loves options, so so uh, I went on Airbnb and then I found a couple of places. It was really easy to ask the host, as they call it, uh, uh, questions. So I had a couple of questions because the the page didn't tell me everything I wanted to know. Maybe that was intentional. Maybe they Airbnb wanted me to ask those questions, so it connected me to the host. They got back to me very quickly, and the interesting thing is. Today, and I'm not sure if this is the host, it feels automated to me, but with, and I only know, know that it's automated because I live in this world, because it doesn't feel automated. The host sent me um, a text message today and an email today inviting me to stay at their place post after, because they answered those questions. And they've kind of given me a timeline to, to respond 
So they've created that like human element of like, hey, you ask questions. I'd really like it if you rented my place. And they put some urgency on it because they put like 48 hours, like, you know, it's still available, hold it for you for 48 hours. So I get this like personal touch. I know that that's automated and that's like almost remarketing at its core, but they, but they spend time thinking about how to do that. Where other sites, they're just gonna like throw that shall, ski chalet on the right side of my screen everywhere I go for the next three days, which is fine. I'm not anti-advertising as well, but it was really interesting the Airbnb scenario of how they did it. That's a great example of two two brands that you know operate very differently. You've got Airbnb who focuses on on customer engagement and. You know, the other services that compete against them are focused on customer acquisition, right? And so, you know, but when, you know, when you're focused on engagement and, and you've got, you know, a higher purpose at your core, you know, that comes out in, you know, not just your, you know, the mantras and taglines that, you know, that you might see in, in corporate communications or in consumer communications, but it actually impacts things like product development. So someone had decided that this is how our platform should work because this is important to us. Yeah. And they spent a lot of money to back that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. One, there's one thing that, um, that there's a, there's a tool that, um, or an exercise that I'll often take my clients through, um, that helps to restore um, some of that, um, some of the mojo, some of the why that they've lost, if the, if they've lost it, um, you know, it's too often when organizations start, or as they go through their strategic planning, you know, their vision, their mission, their values, <clears throat> those things tend to end up, you know, locked away in a in a drawer or like you know on some you know PowerPoint deck that, <laughs> that yes. has been sent around by email. Um, and they, they end up not being very meaningful over time. But one exercise that I'll take clients through is um, the creation of, a, of what we call a brand manifesto. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you can imagine, um, some kind of you know, anthemic soliloquy <laughs> that um, it becomes a rallying cry for not just the leadership team, but the entire organization. Um, sometimes the brand manifestos will end up being sort of consumer facing more oftentimes than not they're really meant as an internal communication tool to bring the entire organization in alignment with what the brand really is meant to stand for so that there's crystal clear clarity on it and everyone can look to it as a bit of a north star to follow yeah uh, you know what I, I, I actually think you turned me on to those a couple of years ago when we did that brand manifesto um, for that one company that uh, that I was involved with um, and I've used that a couple of times in the past with customers when we haven't been able to create that touchstone at the beginning of, uh, of the relationship and it just solves that it gets them yeah. thinking about you know you know why they should be excited that we're doing this work yeah and why they should be excited to come in and, and work on it every day in all the facets of the business we produce them um, as videos often that kind of becomes the you know the lasting artifact that's left behind from the brand manifesto um, but I've seen them you know bring you know 24 25 year old companies they're in you know half of their employees are in tears after seeing it it makes people realize that they have a reason to get out of bed in the morning you know and it, it, it makes them realize them, that it just because they're you know 
filing data all day for the company, that it means something. It's for something. It's not just filing data or cutting checks, doing payroll, whatever it might be. Like, you know, everyone from the front lines to the yeah. back office are united by cause, right? And yeah. that is really what it does. And when they, you know, when they work, and they often do, um, they can be potently powerful and um, really inspire the entire organization. No matter if it's an organization of three or four people, um, you know, an organization of you know three or four thousand people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Rob. Great conversation. Um, when the mic goes off, we may talk longer. Um, but where can our audience find you? I purposely do not have my own website right now. Okay. Um, but people are finding me. You can email me uh, directly uh, at rob at brandrehabhelp.com. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, yeah, you can email me there. Um, I'll certainly do my best to get back to everyone uh, that emails me there. Website in the works at some point, um, but it's kind of nice to not have. Yeah, no problem. And we can get your book at Amazon, which again is uh, is Fix Break, The Addiction That's Killing Brands. That's right. fantastic. Thanks for coming, Rob. Oh, you're welcome.